This is the Faculty New Books Podcast, covering the arts, humanities, sciences and professional fields. Each week we invite a leading or emerging author to discuss their new work. The context of this study is um, it emerged from a previous book called The People and Their Peace, Legal Culture and the Transformation of Inequality in the Post-Revolutionary South, the U.S. South. And there I was exploring the importance and operation of local courts in that region in the period after the American Revolution. And I was using a lot of local court cases in that study, and I kept running across all of these interesting cases involving textiles of some sort. And in particular, it was clear that people who did not have property rights could make legally recognized claims to textiles. And I'm using this term to refer to a bundle of items, clothes, bedding, cloth, and also accessories associated with clothing that that were not made of cloth, such as hats and shoes. So married women regularly made claims to these goods in courts, and so did enslaved people, surprisingly. Now, Given what I was working on, that made sense. Um, I, was, I was arguing in that book, local courts in the United States at the county and municipal level were given a great deal of discretion over public law, and this was by design. So this body of public law covered all matters that involved the public order. So public law included criminal law, but at that time that not only dealt with major felonies, uh, but also mediated all sorts of interpersonal conflicts within local communities. Public law also dealt with all public matters relating to social welfare, public morals, roads, health, and economics, including regulations of market activity locally. And what's interesting is the possession of rights was not necessary to participate in the realm of public law. It was about the maintenance of the public order, and the point was to put things right, not to protect the rights of individuals. And local authorities did just that. They put things right, which meant putting some kinds of property back where it belonged. And in the case of textiles, that meant putting property back with the people to whom it was obviously attached, right? To the people who wore it, to the people who used it. So I could only do so much in that book with this smattering of cases that I had. But once I finished, I started in on a new project looking for all this kind of material, and that is evidence of people's claims to textiles. And once I started in, it was everywhere. This material was all over. Um, In fact, it was hard not to find it. So it was clear from that that textiles function differently in law than other kinds of property. So that people with weak claims to rights and property could make legal claims to all kinds of textiles because this property itself had legal qualities associated with it that made those claims possible. And those legal claims then supported other economic uses. Law made textiles an economic rarity for those without property rights. Law made textiles a secure form of property. And that legal cover that allowed people to use textiles as currency, as capital, and as credit. And those were economic instruments that were otherwise foreclosed to people without rights. So in other words, textiles gave all kinds of economic and legal agency to the vast majority of Americans in this period. There's more to be said here. So first, you actually have to understand the case of James and his striped velvet pantaloons. And I love thinking about an enslaved man, James, with his striped velvet pantaloons. So James lived in South Carolina. This is the 1830s. He had managed to purchase for himself these fashionable, expensive pants, and they were very fashionable at the time. And pretty much everybody knew about that because they were so distinctive. And then they were stolen. So news spread in this community because everybody knew about James and his pants. 
And two months later, when they were spotted in the possession of another enslaved man, they were seized and returned to James. But the matter did not end there because it wasn't just about his pants, it was about law. So instead of just leaving it as that was, James's master initiated a theft case in the court of magistrates and freeholders. And this was the court that's charged with handling cases involving enslaved people and free people of color, not the court that would have handled the theft of a white person's property. In other words, the pants were not his masters, the pants belonged to James. Now his master's name was necessary on the case because James, as an enslaved man, could not initiate a criminal case in South Carolina. But basically after the paperwork was appropriately filled out, the case proceeded as the theft of James's property as a violation of the public order, which recognized James' possession of striped velvet pantaloons. And then the point was to rectify a wrong and to put the pants back where they belonged. Now, this case was like the others that I had previously mentioned, um, involving married women, enslaved people, poor people who were making legal claims to all kinds of textiles. But it's worth pausing here to note what's going on. This case would seem to be a legal impossibility because James was enslaved and without property rights, according to the laws passed and upheld by the state of South Carolina. But none of the white court members who dutifully sorted through all the evidence questioned the legitimacy of what they were doing. And there was a lot of evidence, by the way. Ultimately, James got his pants back. Everyone, including his master and local legal officials, recognized those pants as his. And more than that, they recognized a public order where it was possible for the enslaved people to legally possess textiles, even though they did not have property rights. So we have a whole body of law that is recognizing something that another body of law in that same state does not, and those two bodies of law are existing together. Now, the other thing is that it makes a difference that the property is a pair of pants. So longstanding legal practices recognize the attachment of clothing to the person who wore it. And that connection extended to cloth that had not yet been made up into clothing and to accessories as well. Now, ordinary people that extended those principles out to include all kinds of textiles, such as lengths of cloth that had not been cut up into clothing, sheets, blankets, and even rugs. So they're using those principles to extend them out to claim a whole wide range of property here. And my use of the term textiles actually reflects the law. I'm grouping together property that is obviously different in material terms, but that was handled similarly by the courts. Now, all these principles meant that even married women and enslaved people can make legal claims to these items, something they could not do with other forms of property because marriage and slavery limited the rights necessary for both property ownership and access to legal venues, which again was why James's master's name had to be on that legal complaint. Now, all of these people were well aware that they could make these claims to textiles. And one enslaved woman in New York City, for instance, articulated these principles with stunning clarity in one of a case against her. She was charged with running away from her master and stealing a bundle of clothing. So she admitted to absconding, but not to theft. As she explained, she was merely taking what was hers because she had worn the garments while working in her master's house. Because she wore them, the clothing belonged to her, although the body that wore them did not. These legal principles were so entrenched then and so powerful that officials, particularly at the local level, had to deal with them, even when they conflicted with other laws. So we're talking about not just a shirt or a pair of pants here, we're talking about people without strong claims to rights who are running businesses involving the making and selling of textiles with the expectation that they could control the proceeds. 
Now, these legal practices and principles have been overlooked in the scholarship today. And historians instead have focused on other areas of law, namely the written law, particularly at the state and federal levels, on the legislation, the appellate court decisions, on treatises. The principles associated with textiles are more difficult to see because they existed largely in the realm of practice. Nobody wrote them down. So you have to look at a lot of local cases, figure out the logic of what is going on, because the principles that guide the outcomes were assumed and not discussed openly. So that's one problem. And then the other problem is, Another issue, which is that the principles and practices associated with textiles ultimately became less powerful over time and fell out of use as rights, property rights, became the primary means of claiming property. So that law, rights-based law, is what is laid out in the written documentation in the 19th century, which tends to make it seem like there's a straight line between the past and the present. The written documentation on rights conforms with the way that we understand property today. Um, but still, the other principles, the ones in practice that were associated with textiles, were widely understood and honored in legal venues throughout the 19th century United States, even though they are less visible to us now. So we've forgotten them, but at the time, people used them widely. Historians of the 19th century United States have tended to focus on the legal status of particular groups of people, with the presumption that the rights granted in state and federal law determine those individuals' access to the economy and governing institutions. So since most people did not have those rights, we've kind of assumed that they're on the outside looking in. And this approach then emphasizes what people of marginal legal status could not do. We assume they could not do a lot, participate in the economy, actually participate in most legal venues or in government. Um, it also sorts out these people according to those legal restrictions. So we put enslaved people into one box because they had legal restrictions imposed on them, which is different from free blacks, which we put in another box. We put poor white men in another box. We put free women into two boxes, married and unmarried. Um, and this is all based on their legal disabilities, as if those disabilities themselves constitute the entirety of these people's relationship to law. Now, recent work, to be sure, has moved in different directions, and it's uncovered ways that those of marginal status still used the law. And I've done this in my own work, but even in this work, the emphasis is on the status of people with the presumption that they interacted directly with the legal system, either on their own or through their relationships with others. And property then figures into these analyses as the object of people's legal actions. So property is the goods that they were claiming, they were exchanging, they were squabbling over, but it's kind of inert, right? It's the people who matter in law. Now, working from the insights of all of that scholarship, I'm shifting the perspective from people to the property, namely textiles. And this form of property has real legal resonance apart from the people who own it. So textiles have all these principles associated with them that mediated then people's relationship to the law without altering their legal status. So when people come to courts with textiles, it's the textiles that have the legal principles and then people use them and alter their relationship to law. And that approaches why this project then includes this whole wide array of people whose legal statuses were fundamentally different, but who are usually treated separate, separately in the historiography as a result. So women, enslaved people, free black men, poor men, we think of them as different. And I'm putting them together because they're using textiles in a similar way. Now, these people then could make claims to textiles that did not erase the legal restrictions they suffered, 
the claims to textiles were not recognized formally ever in law as property rights that belong to individuals, even though they kind of function like that in practice, um, they did also not lead to the recognition of other kinds of rights. But textiles mattered. When people are draped in this form of property, they assume these legal forms that are really difficult to ignore. So legal officials have to recognize that they can own this form of property, that they can trade this form of property, and that they can go to court to demand recognition of their claims to it. And all that happens without changing the legal status of those people as individuals. So people purchase textiles to use. But sometimes they didn't use them. They would turn around and loan them. They wouldn't use them in the way that we assume by wearing them, right? They're using them in different ways. So they're going to loan them. They're going to sell them. They're going to otherwise leverage them. So, and they're going to do that according to rules that are set in law and are recognized by local courts. Now, what most Americans then owned in the first half of the 19th century, if they had anything of value at all, was textiles, which are still a very valuable form of property. Now, oddly, the conventional scholarly focus has been on what the minority owned, which is land, slaves, other forms of capital that fueled economic expansion. So I'm shifting the emphasis here from what the minority owned to what the majority owned and thinking about the economy in those ways. And that's textiles. And again, this has this whole body of law attached to them, mainly through practice. But this law then supports this vast area of economy that was not underground or illicit. It's actually governed by legal practice, supported by law and upheld in the New Republic's governing institutions. So think about this for a second. Textiles are everywhere in the first half of the 19th century. And we kind of assume that they were because, well, people like them, because people needed to wear them, because people needed to use them. But people didn't have textiles just because of those reasons. They were everywhere textiles were because the legal principles associated with them made them more than necessities or consumer goods. Law made them this economic rarity, as I said, a secure form of property that could be put to use as currency, credit, and capital, all governed by law. And so textiles allowed those in the mar margins more leverage than their legal status as individuals suggests. And they use that leverage in creative ways to include themselves within the New Republic's governing institution and its developing economy. And we need to take those areas of the economy and law just as seriously as we have taken the other areas of economy and law. That the project uncovers the role that ordinary people without rights played in the legal system. And most importantly, played the, the role that they played in shaping the substance of law in the New Republic. Law was not just something that was imposed on them, they actually shaped its contours in really important ways. They made use of legal principles attached to textiles, embedding them within law and government. So in fact, attention to law distinguishes this project on textiles from other work on material culture that explores the social meanings and far-flung exchange of textiles. And as well, too, it also distinguishes it from the work on capitalism. So one strand of all that work deals with the flow of commodities and credit across national borders. Another strand focuses on the economic strategies of marginalized people. And they're all looking at the circulation of goods as if they're simply consumer goods. And what the scholarship overlooks is law, and particularly the fact that the value of textiles derived from the legal principles attached to them, which were enforceable in the Republic's courts. Unlike rights, the legal principles associated with textiles were not limited to the privileged few, to all these white male merchants, manufacturers, political leaders, who we now assume monopolized the New Republic's economy and their governing institutions. 
The legal principles of textiles extended to all people who produced them, traded them, and wore them. So even those without rights could make use of those legal principles. They can make claims to property. And as such, they're also regulating how we understand the rules of exchange and um, the accumulation of property and what it's for. And all of that is really important in understanding people's relationship to the market and to government at this time. So by enabling this widespread ownership, all of these legal principles not only supported textile market, on which white male merchants, manufacturers, and political leaders relied, but it also extended dynamics well beyond their control. So white merchants actually sold to the people without property rights. So all of the sale of textiles depends on these legal rules and practices that allow those without property rights to purchase and maintain claims to those goods. But then it also supporting part of the market that is well beyond those people's control. So following principles and enforcement, this project then is uncovering all these efforts of ordinary people to engage in law and the economy on their own terms. And the results broaden our economic view to include practices typically characterized as marginal, even illicit, the pawn shops, public auctions, secondhand stores, peddling, ad hoc markets, exchanges amongst friends and relatives. All that begins to look more central, less marginal, more about the center of the economy rather than its periphery. And then none of that is possible without law, getting back to that first point. It all depends on these well-established rules linked to legal principles associated with textiles and recognized throughout the United States. So two, and this is quicker, attention to textiles changes our view of the legal system. So courts in the New Republic recognize and enforce the principles associated with textiles. So in disputes involving the ownership and exchange of textiles, people, even those without claims to other property, marched down to local courts with the expectation that the officials there would uphold their claims and resolve their conflicts. They go down with their sheet, waving it in the air, saying, hey, this is mine. You need to deal with that. And their confidence is well-founded, um, as there's thousands of these cases from urban and rural areas, and they all follow strikingly similar rules, even though the location of these cases is quite different. So it is remarkable that people without property rights felt confident in pursuing cases that looked an awful lot like the assertion of property rights. And it's also equally remarkable um, in the response of local officials who dutifully sat through all of these court cases, sorting through evidence involving shirts and sheets and shifts and handkerchiefs and shoes to figure out whose property was whose. Clearly rights at a certain point in the United States were not necessary and the only means of claiming property. And all that worked alongside other parts of the law that are more familiar to us. And then finally, this project centers women as the paradigmatic legal figures in the period between the revolution and the civil war. Now, this project is ultimately gonna be a book and the title of that book is Only the Clothes on Her Back, Textiles, Law and Commerce in the 19th Century United States. And there is a reason for that, for that her, the clothes on her back. In the 19th century US, women are often treated as a deviation from the norm, defined as, then that norm is defined as the possession of the full range of rights. So that norm though, as this project shows, was not really normal. Most people don't have the full possession of rights in the first half of the 19th century. It applied only to a small minority of the population. Um, and it didn't even include all white men, let alone all men. All these men, like women, lived lives of compromised rights. They were enmeshed in relationships, status, and otherwise, with powerful legal meanings. 
And they all relied on the legal principles associated with textiles and the relationships that supported those. They used those practices all the time. Um, they brought in people to support those claims and they used their relationships with the textiles themselves because they used them, because they wore them um, to support ownership of them. Now, all these people, men as well as women, paid a price as the rights of individuals were elevated over these other principles, principles associated with textiles. Um, and those, that was done without addressing the legal inequalities that actually made textiles so important to a wide range of people who could not claim full participation in the economy or government otherwise. They knew the rules of law that regulated economic exchange. They demanded governing institutions apply those rules to their dealings. And their efforts provide context for understanding how hard fought these battles for inclusion and ultimately equality were in the United States and still are. Because those in society's margins not only expected to be part of the new nation, but also insisted on it from the outset at a time when they're often portrayed as on the outside, you know, at a moment that's merely a prelude to later, more consequential movements in the 20th century that included them as rights-bearing individuals. Now, their successes in this period were meaningful, but ultimately ephemeral. Again, getting back to how hard fought and how long these battles were. Um, and this results in a trajectory change that was anything but linear. So the importance of this piece in the past, and like I said before, has faded over time. Subsequent events washed away evidence of it and made it difficult to imagine that it existed at all. But this project then recovers that past. And in doing so, I think brings more color, more texture, more pattern to our understanding of our forebears and brings the sense of length of time to this longer question of, of battles for equality and inclusion in the United States. So ultimately, sort of in concluding here, legal change before and after the Civil War eroded the power that textiles once had in the legal system. Um, these policies elevated the importance of civil rights, um, especially rights to property ownership. Um, they linked those rights to citizenship. They ensured their extension to all free men, and in theory, even African-American men after the Civil War during Reconstruction. But all of these changes never included women, getting back to my third point about how women are paradigmatic in some ways. Um, men did enter the post-Civil War era with rights. In theory, women were left behind, essentially with only the clothes on their backs, which became flimsy coverings as their legal powers eroded. And it would not be until the 20th century that women would obtain equal access to the same rights as men. Now, the scholarship focuses on that history, one in which rights were extended to African-American men and then ultimately to women. Um, and that's a crucial part of the nation's past, but it's really not the whole story. It doesn't tell the whole story even for men. And what it misses is what textiles reveal, that in practice, many Americans, men and women in the post-Civil War era, still had little more than the clothes on their back, given the theoretical nature of rights for so many Americans. Even as they extended in theory to men, African-American men still could not claim them until the 20th century. And even uh, propertyless white men had difficulty actually using rights to the same full effect that men with property did. And so in this sense, women really are paradigmatic. Their compromised position with rights says a lot about the nation's history as a whole. You have been listening to the Faculty New Books podcast. Head over to Faculty for thousands of interviews and insights across the subject spectrum.